0: All right, folks, welcome back to the Fitz News Studio, another big show on tap here on the Week in Review. We've got a couple of officer-involved shooting stories to cover, including one that's got a big Murdoch connection or multiple connections. We're also going to dig into the victim's rally that was held at the South Carolina State House this past week. Our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, attended that rally. We're going to sit down with him and get his thoughts on what he saw and hear from some of those who attended that rally. And last but not least, We've got a story that we've been cooking up for several weeks now regarding South Carolina's health care mandates during the COVID era and whether or not those were based on real science or power-hungry government bureaucrats. All that and more heading your way on The Week in Review. All right, so our first block today is going to focus on two different officer-involved shootings in South Carolina. And just that term, officer-involved shooting, generates a ton of blowback from people. People don't like that term. They seem to think it's accommodative of law enforcement, that is showing un, unfair deference to police. Frankly, I just think it's what we call something when we don't have all the facts. And folks, facts are very important to making the proper determination as to whether or not police officers acted appropriately or inappropriately in these situations. And we're going to talk about two of these situations, and we're going to look and see whether or not they did or whether they didn't, and let you decide based, again, not on my opinion of it, but the facts. Let's turn to the first story. The first story is the one that really bugs me because it took place down on the outskirts of Charleston, the Ace Basin. In fact, Dylan and I were driving through there not long ago, heading from Walterboro to Charleston, doing some work. But this is a, a high traffic drug artery, people. There's a ton of drugs, a ton of product moving from inland South Carolina to population centers in Charleston. It's a very key drug artery, people. And it's one that has been used frequently by a group called the Cowboys. And if you've If that name is ringing a bell, no, it's not the the team with the light blue pants in Dallas. We're talking about the drug gang in Walterboro that made statewide and, in some circles, national news due to their proximity to a certain individual who was on trial in Walterboro earlier this year. That's right, Alec Murdoch. According to the Office of South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson, several cowboy gang members were, quote, downstream beneficiaries of Murdoch's check cashing scheme, which was part of his method of processing cash from the tens uh, or the millions of dollars, rather close to $10 million that he ripped off from his clients, former law partners and others over a period of nearly a decade leading up to, again, that tragic double homicide at Moselle, which attracted international attention on Walterboro. But the Cowboys are the gang that, according to prosecutors, had some connection to Murdoch's criminal network. Again, we don't know exactly what it was because that investigation is ongoing. In fact, we know there's a statewide grand jury currently meeting right now, continuing to dig into this and other aspects of that Murdoch criminal empire. But this officer-involved shooting involved a leader of the Cowboys gang, one of their top lieutenants, according to sources in Walterboro, who spoke with us. And we're talking about an individual by the name of James Rakeem Pierce. Now, this is a guy, we pull a lot of rap sheets here at Fitz News, folks. When people get arrested, we go, we try to pull, we say, okay, have they been in trouble before? And we literally, we had to trade, we had to get new printer paper for this guy, all right? This, this guy's rap sheet, one of the longest ones that we've ever seen. And if you're, if you're listening, we're scrolling through it real quickly here just to see some of these charges. But we are talking dozens, dozens of criminal charges, and not just parking tickets, either people. These are violent crimes. And I'm looking here at this list here. We've got uh, armed robber, we've got assault, we've got uh, multiple weapons charges, attempted murder, multiple counts of attempted murder people, Um, possession of weapons during violent crimes, uh, illegal possession of firearms, um, discharging weapons into dwellings. I mean, this is bad stuff. Assaulting police officers, resisting arrest, possessing stolen weapons. But over and over and over again, we see these charges dismissed. Now we don't have just violent charges involving Mr. Pierce here. We've got a slew of drug charges and not just the, oh, somebody's got a a joint. No, we got trafficking charges here, people. Coke, lots of it. (laughs) Possession with intent to distribute. And yes, a felony trafficking rap. But just like the violent crimes, these drug charges against Pierce are also repeatedly dismissed. And here's a curious thing. They're repeatedly dismissed by the office of South Carolina 14th Solicitor Duffy Stone, who as you know, if you followed the Murdoch saga, employed Alec Murdoch as an assistant solicitor for many years. And in fact, it still employed him at the time of that graphic double homicide back in June, 2021. But there's another layer of the Murdoch connection to this cowboy drug leader who was repeatedly turned out on the street. That connection, Judge Perry Buckner, who signed off on a sweetheart plea deal for this career criminal back in 2019. Murdoch-friendly prosecutors, Murdoch-friendly judges letting this gang leader go. Sound familiar? Again, we've had a whole litany of this in South Carolina where these influential gang leaders are given preferential treatment by our justice system. So how did this end? Well, fortunately, the two officers who were fired upon by Mr. Pierce, only one of them was wounded, took three shots. Fortunately, that officer, Evan Cubbage, is fine. He's going to make it. No serious injuries, no life-threatening injuries. But Pierce was shot and killed during this exchange. So he's no longer with us. He won't be terrorizing the low country anymore. But the fact he was in a position to potentially kill these two officers and God knows who else. And oh by the way, can continue to supply <laughs> copious amounts of drug product to that Charleston market through this key drug artery. And again, we don't know if this was a drug run. We don't know if that's what precipitated this officer involved shooting, but we do know this, the man in that car whose first reaction was to point and shoot at the police officers who were, again, conducting a routine traffic stop there on Highway 17 coming out of the Ace Basin should have never been in that position because based on that huge criminal record we just showed you, seriously, how many counts of attempted murder does it take? For a judge to say, well, wait a minute, you know what? We should probably not plead out a probation sentence for this violent offender. But this keeps happening in South Carolina, people. It keeps happening. And at some point, it is going to, to produce the sort of tragic result that we're, just, we're not going to be able to ignore it anymore. And we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about how there is a growing group of people who are not ignoring it anymore. Our director of special projects, still no one's gonna be here in just a second to talk about what he saw at the latest victim trial. But before we get to that, let's talk about this second shooting because it's a completely different situation, but it's important. So let's address that now. All right, so the second officer-involved shooting, OIS, that we're talking about this week took place up in York County, except it's not a recent officer-involved shooting. This one actually happened two years ago. And it's in the news this week because a big lawsuit was filed by state representative Justin Bamberg. Now, Justin is a, a well-known name to our audience, he's a former advertiser on this site, a good friend. Also, he had gained national prominence due to the fact he represented some of the victims of Alec Murdoch's financial crimes, which we were talking about in the last segment. So Justin Bamberg, a guy very well respected in the legal community in South Carolina. And he's filed a lawsuit against the York County Sheriff's Department and other individual defendants related to an incident that took place back on May the 7th, 2021. So again, a little over two years ago. But this incident involved a man by the name of Trevor Mullinax, who was at the time experiencing some suicidal ideations. I want to point out real quick before we go any further on this. This is very important. Anybody thinking about killing themselves, harming themselves, remember there is help. Call a friend or just type or text 988 directly from your phone. There's help available. So again, anyone watching this, remember that number, 988. Mullinax didn't call that number though. Mullinax was, apparently there were some relationship issues he was dealing with according to the lawsuit that Bamberg filed. And he's on a property that was owned by his family, sitting in a truck with his mother, leaning through the passenger window, speaking to him. it was at this point that a call had been placed. We still don't know exactly who placed the call, but a wellness check, wellness check was asked for, for Mr. Mullinax. Now, what happened next? If you watch Twitter, you've seen this, a very graphic and jarring short video, which shows York County deputies rolling in, according to Mr. Bamberg, and I want to quote this, like cowboys from a John Wayne movie riding in like cowboys from a John Wayne movie. And if you watch this clip, which uh, if you're listening in our audience, you're only going to hear the rat-a-tat-tat, but let's cut to that real quick because this is a pretty jarring clip. So as you see there, almost 50 rounds fired into the Ford pickup truck where Mr. Mullinax was sitting and the firing begins as he's still talking to his mother, who, again, very curious use of force just from watching that video. You would immediately think, what were these guys thinking? Because literally from the beginning of the clip, when they ride up, within 18 seconds, those weapons are being discharged. Hail of gunfire. Amazingly, Molinac survives. He's hit nine times during this hail of gunfire. Fire. Amazingly, he survives. But what, what happened in the moments pr- preceding this? Because you watch that video and you think immediately this is, an, this is not an officer involved shooting. This is one of those headlines that should read cops killed person. But there are some points that need to be made because, again, we try at Fitz News to get every perspective, to get every bit of evidence we can, all the documents, all the footage, all the facts to say, okay, is there something more here? Because sometimes what you see isn't exactly what you see in terms of the bigger picture and what really happened. So there are some points I wanted to raise that provide some context to this. After the shooting, Mullinax is alleged to have told multiple medical personnel that it was his intention that afternoon to commit what's called suicide by cop, that he had wanted to take his own life with the shotgun he was armed with. And by the way, Let's rewind there. That's the first big point. Mullinex was not just sitting in a truck having a conversation with his mom. He was armed with a hunting shotgun. So that's significant. And perhaps the most significant bit of evidence that we uncovered that would cast some doubt on Representative Bamberg's narrative that was put forward in the lawsuit were statements made by Mullanax's own mother. And I wanted to read these because I think they're very significant. This is from Molonax's own mother. And she said, and I quote, he reached, he grabbed it, he pulled it up, and that's when they saw and started shooting. And by it, she is referring to that hunting shotgun that Trevor Mullinax was carrying. I want to read that again because it's very important. He reached, he grabbed it, he pulled it up, and that's when they saw it and started shooting. It's from Tammy Beeson, again, Mullinax's own mother. That's not one of the cops. That's not one of the people defending the cops. That's his own mother who was a witness to what happened, who was literally the only person who was right there next to him as this happened. Now, how will this impact the lawsuit moving forward? I don't know. Ordinarily, these things get settled, but I am told by York County sources that this case is not going to be settled, that they're going to fight this lawsuit because they believe that these officers acted appropriately. That was also the conclusion of the 16th Circuit Solicitor, Kevin Brackett, who declined to press charges against any of those four officers. Again, will we ever know what actually happened? No, but here's, here's a pro tip. If cops with guns drawn tell you to put your hands up, don't pick up a gun. Pro tip. Anyway, we will keep our audience up to date on both of those officer-involved shootings. And again, we will pursue justice for, again, whatever the facts dictate. Wherever the facts point, that's where we go. It's not about sides. It's about assessing each one of these incidents based on those facts. All right, so this week at the South Carolina State House, the second annual victims rally for reform of South Carolina's badly broken justice system. Our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, you were at this event this
1: year and last year. Can you tell us a little bit about how this movement is growing? Yeah, I remember as we stood at the state house steps a year ago, there, there was kind of this thought of, okay, we, we have the Bowen-Turner pivotal point here. Now, for our readers who weren't our readers at the time, Bowen Turner was accused of raping three women. Uh, He got a sweetheart plea deal, and he used the legal services of Senate Minority Leader Brad Hutto, and a lot of people think that that is how he was able to secure such a ridiculously light uh, plea deal after being accused of three different rapes in three different counties in in three separate instances. All within the space of, what, a
0: year and a half?
1: Right. Very tightly. We covered this. Uh, There were other journalists across the state and even across the country who covered this because it was just so blatant of a miscarriage of justice. And what ended up putting Bowen Turner in jail was not any of those alleged sexual assaults, but actually violating the probation on this sweetheart deal after he got drunk uh, at a restaurant and offered to actually take one of the female staff members home with him. She wisely declined. <laughs> she she Yes. Her life could have been very different had she not declined that night. Um, but that's what put Bowen Turner behind bars. And this, it started a movement in South Carolina. And at the time, you, you really didn't feel like there was much support out there, other than the individuals who gathered that day. Just seeing a crowd of 100 people there was something... That was remarkable in and of itself. And last year, Katrina Sheely, who is an influential senator in South Carolina, came down the statehouse steps and spoke. And that was a really big moment because a lot of people at that rally were vocally decrying one of her colleagues in the Senate. So that was one of the first inklings that there might be any support within the legislature to change these things. And for folks who aren't aware, one of the major problems is the fact that in our legislature, there is a panel which picks who can run for judge, and then later down the line, the, the whole legislature will vote up-down on those people who are picked. The problem is that the vast majority of people who pick judges in our state are also attorneys who practice in front of those judges. So it means that there's this very inappropriate power dynamic when you walk into a courtroom in South Carolina if one of the parties is retaining somebody who's in the legislature. Uh, and, and last year, it seemed as though there was really... No support amongst people who actually have the power to change this system. However, in the intervening year, we've seen a bit of a movement grow. Well, tell us a little bit about this because
0: obviously the Bowen Turner scandal is still very much a part of this. Uh, Carl Stoller, the father of one of his victims, appeared at the rally. He's been a driving force in this, but there are other victims, other families who have also, as you pointed out, experienced injustice firsthand in their lives uh they're starting to step forward and
1: make their voices heard tell us a, there was a story there uh Laurie Williams her brother Larry Vaughn yeah so i spoke with Laurie Williams she was in the crowd at this rally and we should mention that this year we saw a, a broader coalition of some folks who uh were injured by the solicitor's office not not acting quickly enough the law enforcement officers not acting quickly enough letting us sit case for years so a not case just judges sit for years right Our our judicial system is broken down at at multiple different points in South Carolina. We talk a lot about the judges because that's something that you can easily take legislative action on. It's something that is blatantly corrupt. But prosecutors taking too long, uh, law enforcement officers taking too long, that's something that's a lot harder to address with a couple of bills. And it's something where it might be more just a lack of resources, a lack of competency, than it is somebody taking advantage of the system. So it's harder for us to pinpoint down. And, you know, if you look at our coverage, you might think that it's only the judges that are the problem. But it, it, in South Carolina, that problem ranges across a number of different institutions. So we have we heard from people who were heard that way. We heard from Sandy Smith. Mm-hmm. We, of course, cover the Stephen Smith investigation. been a huge part of our coverage. Yeah. I was really inspired by the words of Mandy Matney, uh, our Fitz News alum. Yeah. I think that she Really was ringing the bell there and calling for systemic change, so that was great to hear. Um, but Miss Williams was in attendance, um, and she told me, "I, I won't forget this till the day I die. I'm gonna keep fighting for my brother." I-, I did a really compelling interview with her. I think I really enjoyed having a conversation with her. Well, we've got a clip from it. Don't we? let's. Can we cut to that real quick? Let's, let's cut let's to that. it. I hear from Laurie
0: Williams as she spoke with Dylan Nolan at the rally this past week.
2: My name is Lori Williams. I'm the sister of Lieutenant Larry Vaughn. He was a Rock Hill City police officer for 30 years and was retired for eight months before he was brutally beaten to death inside of his own home on Main Street of Rock Hill, South Carolina. He had been to a bar restaurant a few doors down from his apartment to have a couple drinks and watch some TV and a couple hours later This monster came in and sat down beside him. Later that night, that monster followed him home. And the next morning, my brother was dead. This happened on July 23rd of 2021. We had two bond hearings. We had one the next day with the magistrate court, which he was denied bond. And then the second bond hearing was held January of 2022. He was denied bond at that bond hearing. And we were told that every six months he would be allowed to ask for another bond hearing unless something had changed in between those six months. July came and I called and he had requested the bond hearing again, but we never got a call to arrive. That there was a date until october and 24 hours later they called and canceled it and then in november of 2022 they called and canceled it again and then on a friday afternoon at 5 15 in the afternoon they called to let us know that we had to be in court the following tuesday at nine o'clock that morning when we got there and went in the courtroom there were television cameras there we were sworn in to speak on behalf of my brother. No one spoke for the Monsters family, and which was unusual because at the first bond hearing, they were allowed to speak. When the defendant came in with his fresh new street haircut, he just hoped that something wasn't gonna be, be wrong, but it wound up, they gave him $250,000 bond Judge Alex Kenlaw Jr. And the only way that happened, because nothing had changed in pretty much the 12 months that had passed, was other than Representative Todd Rutherford was hired. He handpicked his judge that he wanted, and whatever deal was made the defendant was given bond two hundred and fifty thousand dollars bond an ankle bracelet a curfew that he can leave his house at 6 in the morning and come home at 9 o'clock at night and a skew recorder to see if he drank any alcohol and now he is out he had to go when he was released from York County he was had to go to Chester County because he had a bond from where he had been caught for DUI in his patrol car when he was off duty after he had had an accident in a daycare center parking lot nothing changed nothing changed at all except the lawyer legislator here send these chambers behind me making dirty deals just like he did for price Price is out and nobody knows where he's at. We just keep letting people go to commit more and more crimes while we, the victims, keep constantly getting victimized. We need some change. And, and I'm here and I'm going to talk to anybody who'll listen and I'm going to talk to people who don't listen. But something has to change.
0: Are that interview with Laurie Williams and the other interviews, the other speakers at that rally, you can watch all of them and get the recap on fitsnews.com. Dylan Nolan did an amazing—not only the video from that, but the article. Dylan wrote that article. Dylan, you got any last thoughts on this, on where this movement's going, the reform movement?
1: Yeah, I mean, it will be really interesting to see, is there a rally next year? I think that if you asked me last year, is there going to be one a year from now, I would have said, I'm not sure. And I guess I'm kind of in the same place. We could see next legislative session that the bills that Joe White and Heather Bauer introduced, we could see them languish in committee, or depending on what happens between now and then, if there's enough public attention on this issue, we could see them gain support, gain sponsors, make it out of committee, and maybe make it to the governor's desk. You never know. I I didn't think that we would see any bills introduced at all to change this problem this time last year. So hopefully you and I can sit down in a year's time and say, look at the progress that's been made since then.
0: Absolutely. As we said, hopefully this is something we'll be able to sit in these chairs and talk about progress that's being made. But I do want to point out that progress is is coming from victims stepping forward, having the courage to take on this system and knowing that there's institutional support, not only those advocates who were at that rally, but media outlets like Fitz News. If you've got a story that you think we should hear, that you think our audience should hear, that exposes this this failed system, this broken system, this corrupt system, bring it to us. That is why we are here, to keep beating that drum for fixing this broken system so that, again, it's not justice for the well-connected, it's justice for everyone. All right, so sometimes we get to tease stories with you a little bit. We get to tell you about projects that we are working on for coverage that's coming up, and I wanted to do that a little bit this week as it relates to a big healthcare story that we've been working on. I want to rewind the clock to the initial days of COVID-19 back in March 2020, that fear that overtook the entire country. Now, we have seen in the intervening years that a lot of that fear, which was stoked relentlessly by government officials, by mainstream press, was a bit overdone, a bit overdone. But The key focus on it for most folks was as it related to mandates, masking mandates, social distancing, uh, vaccine mandates, and particularly as these things related to our children. We have been working for several weeks now on a big story detailing how these mandates were imposed here in South Carolina and whether or not the state agency that implemented them, or at least recommended them, the Department of Health and Environmental Control, was acting in a manner consistent with the best available science, or whether or not they just basically did what the federal government told them. We sat down earlier this month with Denise Hilty. She is out of Charleston, South Carolina, and her daughter was adversely impacted by some of these mandates. She took it upon herself to dig deep into some of that scientific justification and to find out whether or not these state agencies were, in fact, acting in a manner consistent with scientific basis. In other words, whether or not they had any real scientific grounds for the mandates they issued or an understanding of some of the adverse effects that those mandates would have. We also talked briefly about a bill that's been pushed by Senator Harvey Peeler, which would splinter DHEC, South Carolina's Department of Health and Environmental Control. Here's an excerpt from that interview. There's been a huge uptick in parental engagement and advocacy in the aftermath of COVID. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people saw during that crisis for the first time Mm -hmm. sort of how these, uh, you know, top-down mandates get pushed onto Mm -hmm. the public. I think they saw that kind of for the first time, and it was a little unnerving. But Mm -hmm. is there strength in numbers? Should parents band together on these things? Is the sort of yeah. thing where groups of parents are, are, are more likely to effectuate change than.
3: Yes. Good. So, this is, this is another really good question. Um, so, I will say um, I can use an example, mm-hmm. okay? Because I think a lot of people uh, may feel a certain way, but they may not want to vocalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for, in Charleston County, uh, the school board went around the state legislature, the proviso. Um, and they hired outside security to enforce a mask mandate when prior to the mandate, about 80% of students and teachers on back-to-school day were not wearing masks. Um, so most parents did not want to mask their kids, I would say, in Charleston County. I would I'd say that's a, very, a fair statement.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: when the Charleston County School Board mandated the mask and did an enforcement policy with um, security, I think many parents going against their conscience and their better judgment mask their children because they didn't want their children to be retaliated against. And they didn't want to cause waves, but um, it was difficult. It was really difficult for a lot of parents. Um, So, you know, it's something we never really faced before and they wanted them to go to school. So I would say um, in the future, don't do anything that goes against your conscience. Because, especially in this case, I can tell you for sure, the majority, the overwhelming majority of parents did not want to mask their children. And if they just would have said no. And, you know, anyone who wants to mask their children, of course, are more than willing to do that. That's a choice. And, you know, that should be respected. Um, but if everyone who I, I knew and, and it was pervasive um, chose not to mask their children and told the school board no, I think that we probably could have, shifted that. And maybe less of those negative impacts from masking, which was a large majority of that school year, could have been prevented. So moving forward, do your best not to do things that go against your conscience. And you can respectfully and professionally, um, in a a way that supports your children and yourself, stand up and say no.
0: Because it is a slippery slope. We talked Mm-hmm. earlier about how it was guidance but then it very quickly as we've just mentioned it became mandates it, uh, guidance mm-hmm. turns to mandate pretty quickly mm-hmm. sometimes um,
3: that's true let
0: me ask you one last question as it looks looking forward uh, toward the future of this debate as we approach DHEC mm-hmm. and ask them some of these questions because I think as you, you've said a couple times we should ask them and we're, we're going to okay, uh, because I do think they have a lot to answer for
3: mm-hmm.
0: but in restoring that public trust, is it possible under the current structure, do you think that structure has to change? Senator Peeler's bill, which would split this agency in two and make a direct appointment, is that a prerequisite for some of these reforms that you're talking about or do you think Mm -hmm. they can adopt these reforms under the current structure?
3: So as far as like the internal structure, I've looked at their their, um, like diagram Mm -hmm. on their website, but as far as like their day-to-day, I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that works. I think that it's very large. Um, I think that each section of DHEC is specialized in its own way. Like Mm -hmm. my passion, of course, is public health. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that leadership is extremely important in any organization, whether it's a public agency, a state, or a corporation, or even a family. Um, So I think providing sound leadership and making sure things are going in the right direction and being done well and being done to a very high standard, which South Carolinians deserve, Mm -hmm. um, is the way to go. So if whatever structure falls under that, and there's accountability, um, which I know in government is hard sometimes Mm because it's not a traditional corporate structure. um, I think if that's happening, Then it's going to work well. If it's not happening, it's not going to work well, regardless of what the structure is.
0: Again, we're going to have a lot more from Denise Hilti because, folks, this is an amazing woman. She has done a ton of work on this, pushing DHEC, holding them accountable for their decisions. And count on this news outlet to support her and other citizens like her who come forward and challenge the agencies on these assumptions. We're going to continue to cover this story and let you know whether or not your government leaders were truly acting in the best interests of your families when they made these decisions. All right, folks, that is a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review. I want to thank our director of Special Projects, Dylan Nolan, for the amazing work he did covering that victim's rally at the South Carolina State House this past week. Such a hugely important issue, and I'm so glad to see that movement continuing to gain momentum. Hopefully, we will be able to come on this show in the very near future and talk about some very real successes attributable to that movement. Now, switching gears real quick, before we head out, I wanted to remind everybody as that 2024 calendar moves forward, as presidential politics continue to heat up here in the Palmetto State, keep a close eye on our Palmetto Political Stock Index. We are tracking these 2024 candidates. Are they on the rise? Are they on the wane? Is their stock rising or falling? And where should you invest your political capital? Check out our Political Stock Index to find out. Thanks again. We'll check you next time on your Week in Review.